No, I was recently watching some YouTube videos, which is probably a habit I should look into, but came across a video of a physics professor at MIT delivering his final lecture. And he had had a, a long career and was beloved by students of many generations and had a distinctive style of teaching, very charismatic and had a lot of flair that drew people in. But at the same time, he was highly effective at taking these complex ideas and simplifying them so that I don't know that there aren't many bright people at MIT. I think they're all geniuses or something. But even the less than geniuses found his class compelling. And it got me thinking about the teachers I've had in my life, and particularly the ones that made big difference on me, helped me to become the person I am. I had an English teacher in high school uh, who was also my newspaper sponsor, and her name was Miss Blackerby. And she encouraged me to pursue a girl in my class named Erin McSweeney, and who is now my wife. And she was the first person who ever talked to me about the pastor named John Piper, who ended up having a big influence in my life when I first started walking with the Lord again. Now I think about my, my seminary Greek professor, uh, Rob Plummer. He, he had these cheesy songs that helped us to remember all the conjugations of Greek verbs and the case endings of the nouns. And I did that dutifully, like a student should, you know, learn O, Ace, A, Amanetta, Usi, and went through the motions. But I remember going to campus and sitting in his class, and he opened with prayer, and he just sat there silent as he prayed before God. You know, he, he really left a mark on me that studying scripture, whether in Greek or English, is not about interpretation or translation or conjugation. It's about knowing and loving God. And I wouldn't be the person or pastor I am today without him. And, and you know the impact teachers make in people's lives. You've probably got teachers like that in your life. Teachers that you, you would struggle to pull up any individual lesson. You've forgotten almost everything they taught you. As long as you live, you will never forget them. That's a good teacher. But I think we'd also agree that another mark of a good teacher is not just the impact they have in our lives, but it's their ability to communicate those complex ideas on a level that we're able to comprehend. Good teachers, and that's an important phrase, good teachers, take ambiguous things and make them clear. and Take complex ideas and make them simple. And so I wonder, was Jesus a good teacher? I mean, according to the passage David just read for us, Jesus was intentionally vague when he taught. He spoke enigmatically and ambiguously. In fact, it was his purpose to. He told the disciples, and we're going to see it more in a second, that he hid the mystery of the kingdom of God from those who were outside his inner circle. And even those who were inside had to track him down when he was alone and say, hey, you're saying some stuff out there that we think might have been important, but we didn't quite catch it. Can you break it down for us? Can you open it up so we can understand? I mean, was Jesus a good teacher? The parables certainly give us pause, and his stated purpose makes us wonder, who is this guy? 
what is he really trying to accomplish? And so this morning, as we wrestle with the purpose of parables, we're going to kind of go out of order. Today, we're going to just look at verses 10 to 12. And then next week, we're going to come back and look at the parable of the sower and the interpretation Jesus gives in verse 13 and on. But I want you to think about his purpose in the parables, and I want you to really assess your personal response to God's truth. When Jesus taught, he, he spoke to crowds, to multitudes. But only the disciples pressed in. This morning, I want you to see that true disciples always seek a deeper understanding of God's truth so they can more fully experience what it promises. Right now, if you haven't been with us the past few weeks, we've been working our way through Mark's gospel. Uh, This is actually a decades-long project that we're undertaking here at CBC, or it feels that way anyway. And uh, we started last fall with Mark 1, and we picked back up in Mark 3 just a few weeks ago, looking at Jesus' calling of the 12 disciples. And I've kind of thought about this as a training program Jesus, the teacher, puts his disciples through. And he went through the crowd and hand-selected these 12 guys for a specific purpose. said he was going to send them out to teach and to have authority to cast out demons. But he knew that there were some things they had to know first. And so he planned to spend three years with them so they could observe his way of life and the interactions he had with the crowds, and they could absorb his teaching until it changed the way they thought about the world. And so one of the elements he uses is parables. Everywhere he goes, he's teaching, but he's teaching in parables. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 1, he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. Do you have that picture in your mind? Jesus in a boat just a little bit offshore, and the crowd gathered there on the beach, kind of like a natural-made amphitheater so that his voice projected back up to them, and they could all hear. He's teaching them. And Mark says he was teaching them many things in parables. I don't know how many parables Jesus taught. Mark records several of them in Mark chapter 4. In fact, Mark chapter 4 is the longest collection of Jesus' teaching in Mark's gospel outside of what we call the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, where Jesus talks about the end of the world. Mark 4 is full of Jesus' parables, but they're really only a sampling and selection of the things he must have taught. Right? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark recorded every parable we need to know, but according to Mark, he was teaching them in a lot of parables, and a few of the highlights were these. And I think Mark does this because he wants to explain to us Jesus' typical pattern. He wants to give us the reasoning behind the polarizing response of the crowds and disciples. How how could some people hear his teaching and want to kill him? And how could others hear it and be gripped by it so that they seek him out for deeper truth? And so to really understand it, we've got to think long and hard about parables. What are they? How do they work? What's the purpose behind them? I told you last week that parables are stories, metaphors, or similes taken from the real world to illustrate a spiritual truth. Uh, If you think about the parables maybe you've heard of, the ones you've known from Sunday school, or even the one we just read, parable can mean lots of different things. On the one hand, it can mean a long narrative, like the story of the prodigal son. 
that has a beginning, a, a middle, it has a climax and a resolution. It's, it's a story. And even like the parable of the sower that David read has a story. A sower went out to sow, and he cast seed as he went. You know, it's a narrative. At the same time, some of the parables, even in Mark chapter 4, are, are much simpler and shorter. They are similes. The kingdom of heaven is like. I think one of the shortest parables is in Mark 13, where Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure buried in the ground, and overwhelmed with joy, he went and sold everything he had so that he could purchase the field. That's a parable. It's short, whereas the prodigal son runs on for several sentences. How can one word, parable, do so much work? How can it encapsulate and take in all different types of literary forms? Well, I think it's because the form a parable takes is not the main thing. The main thing is that some idea, some spiritual truth, is being communicated in concrete terms, in pictures and stories, rather than abstract principles that you could put on a slide on a screen. That's the way Jesus worked. He taught with concrete pictures. He taught with parables. Parables were, I told you last week, a common device used by the rabbis of Jesus' day. But one thing sets him apart. He made parables the primary tool of his public teaching. It makes you wonder, why? Why would he do that? Why, why, instead of making things crystal clear like a good teacher does, why would he purposefully use a parable which is open to different interpretations and requires some hard thinking? Why not just make it clear? Well, I think I, I've got three reasons. There are probably more. There are three reasons from the text that I want to show you this morning why I think Jesus taught in parables and why if you want to understand who he is as a teacher you have to understand the parables. Number one, parables make God's truth available to all, to everyone. Jesus' parables were rooted in the cultural world that he and his hearers, the crowds, inhabited. That's why when he gathers someplace, people don't say, wow, that guy has a lot of great things to say, but it's all over my head. I think I'm going to go find a better use of my time. Instead, they crowd around because almost instinctively they understand that he's speaking to them. His parables often turn on agricultural metaphors of planting, growing, and harvesting, or on images of construction and building, or the familiar patterns of the extended family life that were all familiar to his crowds. They were peasant people. They were commoners. They lived in a world defined by the seasons of planting and reaping. They knew what it meant to build a house because they'd likely added rooms on to their parents' houses in the past. Jesus was speaking to them. And he could have used the language of the Greek philosophers or strictly stuck to the method of argumentation that the scribes were used to. And had he done that, I wholeheartedly believe that Jesus would have reached philosophers and he would have won the scribes over. But the common people would have been left outside. And so what Jesus did was speak directly to everyone in patterns and pictures that they could understand. Because of that, I think the parables are fundamentally a mark of Jesus' grace. Uh, my theological heroes said that God is like a nursing mother to us. He speaks to us 
with baby talk. Goo goo gaga. He stoops down. He takes these spiritual truths and puts them on our level. Turns out you don't need a seminary degree to understand what Scripture says. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. You're a, a, probably a better reader of Scripture than me and all my friends who went to seminary. You don't need a high school diploma to hear the call of the kingdom. Jesus' parables take the beautiful truths of the gospel down to a level where everyone can understand. And what a warning that is to us. Those who've been called to teach, maybe in a church setting, like a preacher. James says, hey, not many of you should want to be teachers because you know that you're going to be judged more harshly. Sunday school class. But, but even as a parent, called to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and to teach them to observe everything He's commanded. Like we gain nothing by being complex in the way we communicate spiritual truth. We're often guilty of that, though. One of my favorite quotes by the preacher Charles Spurgeon is that some preachers are guilty of the sin of putting God's truth on such a high shelf that instead of hearing Jesus say, feed my sheep, they must have heard him say, feed my giraffes. <laughs> you know, and, what, and what do we gain by that? What do we gain by putting the truth of the gospel on a high shelf where only some highly educated and elite few can attain it? We gain nothing. In fact, the Apostle Paul had it right when he said, I came to you, brothers, but I didn't come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Instead, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. There's a simplicity to the gospel. It's so simple it could be communicated in a parable, in a picture, and be effective at drawing people in to discover more. And we do great harm to the unbelieving world and even those who are new in Christ when we make the truth of the gospel overly complex. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus taught God's truth in parables so that it was available to everybody. Everybody could connect with what he had to say. But there's another reason parables are so important to Jesus' ministry. Parables require contemplation, identification, and action. Contemplation, identification, and action. We see this down in verse 9 when Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He or her who has ears to hear, let them hear. To have ears to hear means to have a, a heart that's open and receptive to what God is saying. To not be closed off to it. That's a huge danger when you come to God's truth, to think you already know what God's up to or what God wants to say or accomplish. And so just to hear the words and let them go into your ears and then filter through your mind and out your memories and never to think about them again. That's a danger. But it's a worse danger to hear Jesus' parables and think, hmm, what a neat little story. See, parables convey truth, but not in a way that's easy to grab onto. Now, I think about us as modern people, and I did go through newspaper class, and, you know, journalistic writing gets to the point without fluff. And that's the way you and I are primed to receive truth. 
Uh, we like bullet points. We like summaries. Okay, yeah, 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 but just get down to what do I need to know? We like cliff notes so that we don't have to read through all the mess. Just pull out, what's it mean? But, but Jesus didn't do that. He didn't teach that way. He didn't say, download these principles. He told stories. And to understand the stories Jesus told, you have to think. You have to contemplate what they mean. Of course, you could ex experience the parables just as a neat little story about a sower, right? Um, yeah, not every seed that the farmer throws on the ground takes root, grows up, and bears fruit. True enough. I mean, we've all experienced that. You've, you've gone through that season where you thought, hey, you know what, I'm going to be a gardener. And you go down to Ace or you go to HEB, get your packet of seeds, and you start them in the little newspaper pot, and you put five little seeds in there, and only a couple of plants come up. I mean, even us, people like us, without the green thumb, understand the truth to Jesus' story. Yeah, not every seed you sow is going to bear fruit. Great, true enough. But you, don't you get the sense that Jesus means something deeper than that? That there's another layer of meaning, that this isn't just about the sowing and reaping and the harvesting and bearing, that there's some spiritual principle at work. And if you want to discover that principle, if you want to get through the story, if you want to penetrate the parable, you have to contemplate. Parables are the kinds of stories that stick with you, and you turn them over in your head over and over and over until God's truth comes out. And so if you're looking for quick answers, the summaries to, okay, just let's break this Christianity thing down to a few basic points. Parables are not your friend. That's not what you're going to find there. Instead, you're going to find an enigmatic story or saying that forces you to think. And once you've thought, it demands that you identify with it, that you put yourself into the story and into the, into the world that the parable creates. You have to imagine a pearl of great price. Isn't that a great phrase? Jesus tells a parable about a, a pearl of great price. Imagine the most magnificent pearl, or better yet, let's put it in modern lingo. Can you imagine the clearest, heaviest, most perfectly cut diamond you can imagine? That's what the kingdom of God is like. That's how valuable it is. You have to think about a treasure buried in a field and imagine what it must have been like for the guy walking through the field and then stubbing his toe on what must have apparently seemed to him like a rock, but once he stooped down and started to look, discovered it was the corner of a treasure chest. You have to think about a mustard seed and how small it is and then imagine how it might grow into the largest plant in your garden, so much so that even crazy wild birds came and took up nest in it. You have to think about a prodigal son and imagine the father out front of his house with his arms wide open welcoming him home. You have to think about a Samaritan tending a robbed man's wounds and pouring oil on him. You have to think and identify. You have to ask yourself, would I have received the son have I ever been a prodigal? If I were in the Samaritan's shoes, would I have done what he did? You have to identify with parables to really understand them. Robert Funk says that the parable is not closed 
until the reader is drawn in as a participant. And that's exactly Jesus' purpose. He means to draw his hearers in and to force them to consider God's truth on an experiential level. He wasn't a physics professor or a Greek professor or an English teacher. He wasn't preparing his students for an exam at the end of the course, making sure they understood the concepts they needed to, to pass on to the next level. He said he was training his disciples in a way of life. And along the way, he wanted them to imagine what it would be like to be a disciple, to be the type of person Jesus was calling them to be, to live inside the kingdom that he came announcing. And the stories prepare him to do that. They're like the the role-playing exercises our teachers put us in. When at the end of a course, you learn the concept, okay, now break up into groups of two and practice on each other. That's what Jesus is doing in the parables. He's inviting us to try on the kingdom life for size and to figure out how we would react. He calls us to identify with the parables. And having identified with them, to act. R.T. France says the meaning of parables is not likely to lie at the purely cognitive level, not just in your thinking, but will include and indeed may simply be a call to response at the level of attitude, will, and action. Parable's not about dissecting the truth that Jesus wants you to teach so you can put it on a bullet and carry it with you in your beautiful brain that he made. Parable changes the way you live. Because of that, you know you understand a parable when you've acted on the truth it conveys. Parables prevent God's truth from hanging out there as the mere abstractions that you and I tend towards. The theories, and the preacher's favorite phrase, the principle. That's not what parables are about. Parables are about changed lives. Because of that, if you really want to really understand a parable, you have to think about the way you act as a result of it. You're going to have to decide, am I going to be a good Samaritan? Or am I going to stick my nose up and go to the other side? Am I going to be like the man who gave up everything for the sake of the treasure? Or am I going to hang on to what I've got? You have to decide. Each one of us, when we read Jesus' parables, have to decide what it means for us. Because of that, I love this, and I want you to think long and hard about it. It'd be better for us to say, not that we interpret parables but that parables interpret us. They shine a light into the deep places of our soul until we know for sure what Jesus demands of us and how we're going to act. So I think Jesus' use of the parables mainly comes down to that, that he demands contemplation, identification, and action. You can't boil it down to its most simple basic truth and hold it in your pocket. you got to put yourself in it and decide what to do. And when that happens, we'll see that parables elicit different responses. And isn't that what he says in verses 10 to 12? Mark tells us that as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. We're going to see in detail next week the parable of the sower. 
But clearly, Jesus' point is that like the sower who scatters seed indiscriminately, pulling out of his bag a handful and tossing it here and tossing it there, Jesus is teaching his parables to the crowds because he knows that in the same way only some seeds bear fruit, only some hearts are going to be open and receptive to the parable he teaches, and only some people are going to respond in faith. The difference wasn't due to his teaching skill or that he overlooked somebody, missed out on them. And so the difference was present in the person. The difference came in the, in the person who received the truth. The parables divided Jesus' hearers into two groups. That's uncomfortable. I hope you feel how uncomfortable it is because it's hard to preach this. The parables divide Jesus' hearers into two groups. On the one side, you have those who possess the mystery of the kingdom of God. And on the other, those who are outside. That's clear. There are only two kinds of people when Jesus teaches. Those who get it and those who don't. Now, you'd think that most teachers would make it their aim to move those who don't into the group of those who do. And so the teacher would notice a student falling behind in class and would go to them and give them some extra attention, maybe reach out to their parents and say, hey, it might be useful to you if you got them a tutor in this subject. Right? That's what a good teacher would do, right? But instead, Jesus just acknowledges the fact that, yeah, every time I teach, some people get it and other people don't. In fact, he goes beyond that recognition to say that it was actually his purpose to produce that result. He uses this phrase, so that. So that. Those outside have it in parables. So that, while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Now, this is Jesus' self-defined purpose. You want to understand why he taught in parables? Well, this is it. So that. Those who see may not perceive, and those who hear may not understand. Otherwise, they'd turn and repent. Maybe your Bible sets it off like mine. Mine has those words in all capital letters, which alerts me to the fact that this is a quotation of some earlier portion of Scripture. And if you look at your footnote or your cross-reference, it'll tell you that this is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And maybe if you've been around church, you've heard the story of Isaiah 6. If not, let me give it to you in brief. Isaiah was a priest, royal family. One day he was praying in God's temple, and God gave him a vision, a vision of God in glory and majesty seated on his throne. Isaiah was so overwhelmed with this vision that he fell down before God and said, Woe is me. I'm of a people of, I'm from an unclean people, and I'm a man of unclean lips. And God sanctified him. He, he symbolized it by an angel taking a flaming hot coal off the altar and touching Isaiah's lips, purifying and sanctifying his mouth. And then God says this amazing thing. He says, Who will I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Well, here am I. Send me. Send me. And you got to think in that moment, I've, I've said similar things to God. 
Here I am, God, I'm yours. Do with me what you want. In those moments, I feel exceptionally holy. And like I'm, you know, I'm one of the in crowd. I'm, I'm one of those who get it. I know that there's bigger purpose for my life and I'm surrendered completely to you, God. Have y'all ever been there at a youth camp or something? Well, I, I can't imagine what Isaiah must have felt as soon as he says, here am I, send me, that God tells him what his task is going to be. And he says to him in Isaiah 6, 9, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive, and keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive and their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Isaiah does what you and I probably would do. Well, how long do you want me to do that? And God says, until I make the nation a desolation. So Isaiah, you know, surrendered to God great, but he might should have thought about what that would entail first. That God had sent him not to a holy and righteous people looking and longing for God, but to a people whose heart were totally turned against him. Chapter 5 outlines all the wickedness that they had done when they had rejected God's covenant. It says in Isaiah 5.20 that they had called evil good and good evil that they'd substituted darkness for light and light for darkness, that they had exchanged sweetness for bitterness and bitterness for sweet. And so God's message through Isaiah was coming to a people whose minds were already made up about God. They'd already decided, you know, we've had our chance, God is great, but hey, we got all this other stuff to live for. And so when Isaiah came preaching God's truth, warning them of coming judgment and calling them to repentance, they ignored him. They were confirmed in their unbelief. They'd rejected God, and now God was giving them exactly what they wanted. And Jesus quotes this passage because I think he sees exactly what happened to Isaiah happening through him. Last week we saw it, didn't we? The scribes come up and see Jesus' miracles. They take account of all the people who'd had their demons cast out. They have to acknowledge something supernatural is going on here, but their decision was, hey, this must be the work of Satan. They'd already made up their mind about Jesus. The scribes, back in chapter 3, verse 6, went out to seeking to destroy him. These people had their minds made up about who Jesus was and what he was doing. And so when they saw his miracles and when they heard his teaching, their hearts were already close to him and they wanted nothing to do with it. The parables confirmed them and their unbelief. But then there was the other group. Jesus says, you possess the mystery of the kingdom of God. Now we're primed to think of this group as the twelve those hand-selected disciples brought up on the mountaintop, set apart as apostles, going to be sent out to preach the gospel and to cast out demons. So Jesus is bringing these guys into his inner circle and giving them this secret, hidden truth that he's keeping back from everyone else, right? But look closely at verse 10 again. Mark tells us, As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. See, our group has enlarged. 
those who possess the mystery of the kingdom of God are not just some hand-selected elite group of men, but I like the way one person put it. He said, they're self-selected. They're anybody who hears Jesus' teaching and says, there's got to be more to this than what's here on the surface. I've got to press in and get closer so I can understand what he's really trying to say. Apparently, when Jesus taught the crowd, there were some people present whose ears perked up and whose heart started to stir, who maybe felt what I would call the, the move of the Holy Spirit on them, started to get a little teary-eyed, the hair on the back of their neck standing up. They can see that something's up here. And so they press in to discover the truth. They'd contemplated the parables. They thought about the different types of soil. And they wonder, well, who could these people be? What could this soil be all about? And so they pressed in for private explanation. And I think true disciples are always that way. True disciples always seek a deeper understanding of God's truth so that they can more fully experience what it promises. You don't just satisfied with surface level, but you dig in to uncover what's really there. And Jesus says that that was the purpose of parables, that he hid the truth of the kingdom in plain sight so that those who were willing to contemplate and identify and act on it would come to him and he could open up to them and help them to see the truth that he was trying to convey. In fact, Mark, at the end of the parables in Mark 4, he summarizes Jesus' practice in Mark 4.33. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he didn't speak to them without a parable. But he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. This was Jesus' method. He's going to scatter the seed so that everyone can hear and those who came back for more would get the fuller explanation. And this is what he means when he talks about the mystery of the kingdom of, the, of, the kingdom of God. By the word mystery, you know, he's not thinking about the game of Clue, like a whodunit and trying to discover some secret, spooky truth. He's using the word mystery like the Scripture always does. And you can read it in Daniel chapter 2 where Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that God reveals mysteries. From a scriptural perspective, a mystery is something that's been hidden, and only God can make it clear. And according to Jesus, the disciples have insight into the hidden purpose of God. They're able to see that in Jesus, God is bringing his kingdom, and he is preparing to accomplish everything he promised that Jesus isn't possessed by a demon. How illogical. But that this is God working through him. That Jesus must be more than just a teacher. Therefore, I don't think the disciples understood all the time every detail of the parables. They have to come and ask for more questions. But they did know. They were gripped with some kind of inner conviction that what Jesus was saying was true and significant. And they pressed in for a deeper understanding so they could get some of what it promised. This morning, I wonder if you are like them. Do you press in to God's truth? Or are you satisfied with bullet point summaries of what God says? When you hear the teaching of Scripture, do you file away a few facts? Oh, okay, a parable is a story, simile, or metaphor conveying spiritual truth in concrete terms. Now I'll know next time the question's asked in Sunday school. 
Or do you press in and ask the question, God, what do you want from me from what you've said? Do you contemplate, identify, most importantly, do you act on what you've heard? I mean, think back to your teachers, the ones who've made the biggest impact in your life. Look at who you are today and why you are, how they shaped you and pointed you in the right direction. I just want to ask you if a human teacher, a merely human teacher, can make that kind of impact in your life, shouldn't Jesus have made a bigger one? I wonder, are you discernibly different because of the impact of Jesus in your life? Are you living out the truth he conveys? That's the most important thing from his perspective. My favorite parables comes at the end of Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, the person who hears these words and acts on them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. And when the rains came and the wind blew, his house was safe. But a person who hears these words and doesn't act on them will be like a man who built his house on the sand. And when the rains came and the winds blew, the house fell down. And great was the fall of it. Now what really matters for Jesus' disciples is not just hearing the word, but doing it. So are you living obediently to Jesus' truth? Are you seeking a deeper understanding so it can take root in your life and change you from the inside out? You know, the mystery of the gospel of the kingdom is really simple. It's that in Christ, God was fulfilling all the promises he'd ever made, was providing for his people's forgiveness and life through the death of Jesus. When a person discovers that mystery, the truthfulness of it, it changes everything about them. And Jesus says in Mark 1, 14 and 15 that it means repenting That's letting go and turning from your sin and believing. That's taking hold of Christ, trusting that what he says is true and meaningful and can really make a difference. And you know there are millions of people who've heard that message time and time again and have never obeyed it. They've never repented. Their life is just the same as it's always been and they've never believed. There are even people in churches every Sunday, who've heard the message a thousand times and, and tune it out. Yeah, 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 the gospel, Jesus on the cross, I get it. I know that. I know that. But they've never contemplated, identified, and acted on it. They've never repented and believed. And this morning, if you are one of them, today's the day. can't deny the truth that you've heard. I've tried to make it clear and unambiguous. I've tried to take the complex and make it crystal clear and simple. Christ's claim is on you today to repent of your sins and to believe the gospel. If you've never done that, I'd love to help you figure out what that could mean in your life. And later on, after our service, I'll be standing out here in the fellowship hall, and I'd love to help you figure it out. I'd love to talk with you and pray with you. But I also know there are a lot of people who have done that. They acted one time. 
they prayed a prayer and they raised their hand and they maybe walked down an aisle and they got saved. But they haven't pressed in anymore since then. They haven't grown in their understanding of Christ. They haven't grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, as the Scriptures say. And maybe today, you're one of them. And Christ's truth has gripped your heart. You can't let it be stories anymore, but you're going to have to act. If that's you, I would love to encourage you. There are literally people in our church who would love to help you figure out what it means to follow Christ in a life of obedience. So if you want to make a fresh start with him and do that today, let me know. Will you pray with me?